when I was in grade school, I don't remember how old I was. I remember my grandmother owned a Cadillac. Uh, it was a beautiful car, kind of a brownish gold, and it had this really nice tan leather interior. And I really liked the feeling of leather, except on a hot day when you're wearing shorts and your skin sticks to the seats. I also remember how upset my dad got with me because in a brainless moment, I bit little holes into the back of the driver's side headrest. Little holes in the leather. I'm not proud of it. I, I, if you ask me why, my only answer is I have absolutely no idea. Why would anybody bite holes into the back of a car's headrest? There's never any good reason to bite holes in a car upholstery. I actually tried to think of one. There's not. And the headrest was ruined. It was usable, but it looked a little strange, like maybe a, a weird constellation on the back. Have you ever had something get ruined like that? A child spills something with indelible red dye on your white sofa. Or a tree falls on your car. Worse, this is a true story, a crane topples over and cuts your house in two. An important dinner is spoiled by undercooked fish. A coat gets ripped on a nail. There are literally hundreds of examples like these when things get ruined. But lives can also get ruined. A teenager takes some bad personal choices and ends up in serious legal trouble. A young couple rushes into a relationship and the young lady gets pregnant. A middle-aged man loses his job to budget cuts and it costs him his house. Bitcoin. Seriously, we think of those things as ruining lives when really there are not many things that actually ruin a life. When you talk about Nahum, this is life-ruining stuff. How about your country being completely overtaken by a foreign army? Or your house and community being burned to the ground? Your farm, farm animals and crops being totally destroyed? And how about being enslaved and taken to another land? These are even more serious than the previous things. But do they really ruin a life? Maybe. But I'm loathe to say that anything like these can actually ruin lives because God loves to restore ruined things. Israel had been unfaithful to her covenant with God. And the curses that Moses predicted would come if they turned away from him had come to pass. The nation was decimated by the Assyrians. And from a human standpoint, all seemed lost. For a moment, just realize, the Assyrian nation, the army of Assyria, not only took the northern kingdom completely captive, but under Sennacherib took all the fortified cities of Judah, and all that was left was really only Jerusalem. As Sennacherib had inscribed on a stella, uh, which looks like an obelisk, he had inscribed up some words about Hezekiah 
that he captured him and trapped him in a cage like a bird. Speaking of capturing him or him being in Jerusalem and unable to get out. The nation was ruined. And here at the end of chapter 1, God promises two things. To restore national Israel and destroy Assyria. And really even Babylonia. And as we know, what God promises always comes to pass. So consider with me first. God destroys the oppressors of his people. Their destruction is certain. Look at verse 9 again. Speaking to the Assyrians, what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up a second time. For while they be folded together as thorns and drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. God, in verse 8, is an overwhelming flood that will end Nineveh. His anger, he compares to something like a volcano. In verse 5, a shaking mountain. Also in verse 5, melting earth. In verse 6, fire, his wrath poured out like fire that melts the earth. And he pursues his enemies until they are dead. Notice it says, to the very realms of darkness. That's the place of the dead. God is going to end Nineveh. And his enemies cannot plot against him as if to overthrow his design. He brings them to an end. And he says here, affliction will not rise up a second time. In other words, there will be so nothing of you left that you'll never be able to afflict anybody anymore a second time. There's no second chance. There's no bargaining here. Once they are destroyed, nothing more will be done. And notice the descriptive phrases he uses to describe how he will end them. They will be like someone caught up in a thorn bush. You, you can imagine uh, running through a thicket and being caught up in a thorn bush. Or he says, helpless, like someone who is completely drunk, cannot function, cannot think. He says, you will be burned like the driest kindling wood. And these phrases are all meant to show to the Assyrians they have absolutely no hope. Their destruction is certain. There will be no one remaining. Nineveh will be so completely destroyed, there will be no longer Ninevites. Look down at verse 14. He says, uh, No more of thy name will be sown. You, you're going to be completely gone. There's, there's not going to be children to you. And in actuality, in 612 BC, the Ninevites and the Assyrians were eliminated. They were completely destroyed. In fact, the destruction of Assyria was so total that it, many presumed up until the mid-1840s that there was no Assyria. And there's no place called Nineveh. It's kind of deemed like Atlantis. Uh, there's supposed to be a city of Atlantis. Was it Homer that wrote about Atlantis in one of his books? And so people are always searching for Atlantis. That, that's kind of the way people would have thought of Nineveh. But in 1840, actually, a gentleman named Henry Layard found Nineveh uh, in an expedition to Assyria, the oldest ancient Assyria. And the Assyrians, he says, you'll be dumped into a vile grave. Look again at verse 14. 
and the molten image, I will make your grave. You are vile. God will put them in a grave, that the kind of grave that they deserve. So what he's saying is, your, your destruction is certain. You can't bargain. There's no going back. You can't plot against God. He is an overwhelming flood who will end you and no one will remain. Number two, little letter B actually, the destruction is not only certain, it's also warranted. Look at verse 11. There is one come out of you who imagines evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. The enemies of God were led by an evil leader who plotted against God. And this may be an Assyrian king. That's kind of my view. And it could be Sennacherib who lived in 705 or reigned from 705 to 681 BC. Or I think more likely it's a reference to Ashurbanipal, not to be confused with Ashurnasipal. And that can be confusing, I admit. He reigned unlike eight or ten uh, kings earlier. But Ashurbanipal was a very seemingly powerful king. And so it could be an Assyrian king. He says uh, the evil counselor may be an Assyrian king. It could be Nineveh, Nineveh itself. Or it even could be the nation of, of Assyria. And this individual or this corporate entity imagines evil against God. And I was wondering, because that phrase in the King James particularly stuck in my mind. What is imagines evil? I've read that before. So I went and looked it up. And that Hebrew word is used in other places like in Genesis 50. Remember when Joseph said to his brothers, you imagined evil against me, God meant for good. Or in, in uh, Haman, uh, his desire to kill the Jews at the time of Esther, he imagined evil against the people of God. And so this phrase is used, and it's always used with the same kind of connotation that, that they're plotting against God as if they can somehow do this. So the enemies of God were led by an evil leader, verse 11. Look at the end of verse 14, kind of the middle of verse 14. Not only were they led by an evil leader, the enemies of God were idolatrous. They had a temple where they worshipped their god, Dagon, who is in God lore, the father of Baal. Uh, he is the fertility god of both the Philistines and the Assyrians. And here they assembled in their temples all the gods of defeated nations. Do you, do you remember what they did when they captured the Ark of the Covenant? They went. The Philistines went and put it in the temple of Dagon, their own temple. Not an Assyrian temple, a Philistine temple. But this is what you would do. You conquer these nations. And when... Um, the Assyrians came and, and, and told Hezekiah's counselors outside the wall, we've conquered all these other nations, and where were their gods? Uh, and, and tried to intimidate them. They would take those gods and they would put them in the temple, kind of as homage to Dagon. But their gods, he says, would be destroyed. He actually prophesies here that the temple will be looted when it was sacked, and their idolatry would be ended. So not only is their destruction certain, their destruction is warranted. Let me tell you something. God did not destroy the people of Canaan on a whim. You read in the Old Testament these, these violent overthrows of these nations. It's not on a whim. There are innocent people, as it were, in our minds, innocent in the sense that they're not evil, the worst kind of evil, who do get caught up in these kinds of things. But these people were led by an evil leader and they were very idolatrous and all the things that came with those things. So, little letter C, their destruction was unpreventable. It's going to be certain. It's, it's warranted. 
and there's nothing they can do to keep it from happening. Chapter 2 and verse 1, He who dashes in pieces has come up before your face. I, I love the way this is written in the original language. The one who scatters is standing right in your face. And it's not themselves. They're the one who normally scatter. This, is, this word is used to descriptively to explain what the Assyrian army would do when they captured a people. They would scatter them across the face of the earth. They would try to eliminate them as a race. They would scatter them. But the one who really scatters, who dashes in pieces, is the way the King James put it here, is now standing right in your face. And so now the prophet, as many prophets are, is being sarcastic when he says, get the munition. Set a watch, by the way. Strengthen yourself and fortify your power. I love this. He says, he says, put a guard on the fortress. Set a watch on the main road. Everybody get ready for the main assault. As if that will somehow help. But the destruction is coming and there's nothing they can do about it. My friends, God destroys the oppressors of his people. This is a, something God has been doing throughout the centuries and that God will do in the end of days. So part of the way that God helps believers, if you think about this, this promise to national Israel at the time, part of the way that God helps believers today as we read a story like this is it reminds us that we are in spiritual warfare. We're in a battle too. You remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, that God would come back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. There is a promise that at the end of days, God will make all things right. And just like the people who read Nahum's prophecy could hang their hat on it, and we're going to learn later that one of the people who turned to God because of this book is a king, a wicked king named Manasseh. We can read a book like this. We can read a prophecy like this. And we can realize this is what God is doing and what he will do. Our spiritual enemies will be destroyed. God will overthrow the evil in this world. I, I, by the end of my week on Saturday, I've read enough news to go, what in the world is going on here? I, I got in the car the other day and was listening to the news and heard that some people in Milwaukee just decided to shoot up the town like it was the wild, wild west. By the way, that story is now gone from the news because some crazy guy, and a young man, an 18-year-old, drove hours with, with weapons in his car and decided to shoot up a grocery store yesterday. And you read these stories, how horrible and evil it is and all the evil that goes on with it. God's going to overthrow that. He's going to overthrow the illicit drug industry that is wrecking so many lives. He's going to overcome the businesses that prey on people's lusts, that enslave people in harmful addictions. And it may not be in the immediacy. But this is what God is doing. And he does this because God will destroy the oppressors of his people. Number two. Not only will God destroy those who oppress his people, but he'll restore his people to their place of rest. This is number two. God restores broken people to their place of rest. 
Notice that God says he'll end the affliction of his people. Thus saith the Lord, verse 12, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet they shall be cut down. Now this verse is a little strange. Let me give you the interpretation here or the way the translation. The meaning of the phrase in Hebrew should read something like this. And I actually went back and did a little translation work. This was heavy lifting for me. Let me tell you, this is not an easy verse to translate. Even though he is at full strength, he will be cut off and not pass away. That's what the Hebrew is saying. I have no idea how the King James translator came, came up with their words because I actually went and went to my lexicon. This is what the verse actually says. Even though he's at full strength, he will be cut off and pass away. So the Assyrians, the promise here is they'll be destroyed. They will be cut off. And the promise, notice in verse 12, is directly from God. If you're living... In, in, a, a, in a foreign land, because your kingdom has been conquered by the Assyrians, if you're one of God's people, and your life has been decimated by the Assyrian violence, your, your home is destroyed, your farms and crops are ruined, you, your children have been scattered, you're, you're alone. And now you're enslaved to a family that speaks a language you don't even know what they say. Can you imagine how comforting it would be to you to read something like God says, from my own mouth, verse 12, thus saith the Lord, here's the familiar phrase that in the ancient world would precede an oracle, a wise saying of truth. This is what the Lord says. Here it is. This is what the Lord says. Even though Assyria is at full strength, he will be cut off and pass away. Now that's powerful, friends. Assyria has no hope. God will end his ability to inflict any kind of pain on God's people. And the promise indicates that even the affliction itself was controlled by God. In fact, I remember reading with those Old Testament prophets warned, I'll bring a people upon you that you don't know, someone who comes from a far distant land. That would be the Assyrians. That would be the Babylonians. Later, the Persians. And he brought affliction, verse 12, on Judah. He, Though I have afflicted you, and the you there is to Judah, I will afflict you no more. So God will end the affliction of his people. Let her be. Peace will be declared. Look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. Keep that thought in your mind for just a moment. O Judah, Keep your solemn feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, Nahum here is quoting somebody. When he talks about the mountains and the feet of him that brings good tidings. Well, where is that quotation familiar to you? You know that quotation from the New Testament. Where is that familiar? Anybody know? Where do you hear that quotation? Blessed are the feet, the beautiful feet of the one who brings the tidings of peace. That's actually in Romans chapter 10. Years ago, I had a homeschool Bible class. And, and we had a little Chinese girl in our class. And, uh, and uh, she was fun to pick on. Uh, sweet girl. Um, actually, she won the National Bible Bee a couple years in a row. She won it. She was a smart girl. I take all the credit for that. <laughs> Because I did teach her the Bible uh, for for quite for a few years, many years actually. But so really, everything she knew, yeah. 
But but I I told her, I said one day, I said, hey, uh, you know, men are better looking than women. And he, she said, oh, that's not right. I said, no, I'm telling you, men are better looking than women. The Bible tells you men are better looking than women. She, she said, no, I don't believe that. I said, well, what's the ugliest part of a man's body? And she sat and thought for a while. I said, wouldn't you say his feet? And after a while, she said, yeah, I think probably man's feet. That's ugly. Yeah, yeah. Feet are ugly. Yeah. Man's feet. And I said, and, and, the, and the New Testament talks about the one who brings the blessing of peace, the tidings of peace, and that his feet are beautiful. Now, if the ugliest part of a man's body who brings the gospel is beautiful, then he's got to be a lot better looking than any woman. You've got to figure that. Well, this bothered her so much. She went home and wrote me a, a page and a half paper on why women are more beautiful than men. <laughs> well, Nahum is not quoting Paul. Okay, if, if we start saying Nahum quoting Paul, then we're all mixed up in our timelines, right? Uh, because Paul's in the New Testament. Nahum's in the Old Testament. Actually, here he's quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah actually makes this statement. In fact, I think Paul's probably quoting Isaiah more than quoting Nahum. But the idea here is the same. It's on the mountains is the feet of him who brings good tidings. It's, the, it's a herald who will publish good news. So here you have, that at the time, people are being oppressed by the Assyrians. Later, they're going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. But even in their captivity, a herald will come and will declare to them that God saves. And, and I don't know who that herald is. I've got my guess. I, I'm going to guess Jeremiah. It, it may be Daniel, but I think probably Jeremiah might be this herald. It may be an undescript person. It might just be generally there will be prophets out declaring this. But it's no wonder Paul uses this phrase to explain the announcement of the gospel because when you think about what the gospel is, it is really, really good news. And what we have here is this herald declaring that God will save Judah. He will save his people. Publishing peace. A declaration of peace that comes to us. Just in the same way in the gospel, through Christ. The nation that was wicked and had a wicked counselor. The, the, the word Belial is there. The, the, the Satan, the one who is following like Satan, will be thrown down. And there is imagery here that the New Testament uses to explain how all of these Old Testament texts apply to us. The gospel is just like this. I am somebody, if left to myself, I would be in captive to sin. But because the gospel declared peace to me from God, my accepting it brought me into a relationship with him. So I love this idea. Peace will be declared. And then third, let us see, that which was ruined will be restored. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. The Lord has turned away the excellency of Jacob and the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The promise here is that all of national Israel will be destroyed. Notice the end of the verse. The emptiers had emptied them out. Here, here's what these people were. They were plunderers. They would go into these ancient kingdoms, would come into other ancient kingdoms, and would plunder and loot and take everybody's stuff. They were thieves. And Assyria was a thief, and Babylon was a thief. And God said, these plunderers who marred the vine branches... 
A reference to national Israel. Remember, Israel is called a vine in Genesis 49. In Isaiah 5, that's the text that's most obvious. In Jeremiah 12, Israel is called a vine. The vine branches have been seriously wounded by other nations. They had marred the vine branches. They had marred Israel. But these plunderers, these who emptied out, they themselves would be plundered. And Assyria falls in 612 B.C. And, and, the, and uh, remember, the northern kingdom, they destroyed the northern kingdom. Babylon falls in 539 B.C. This was the nation that sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Both of these nations would be destroyed by God's command and decree. And so what God is saying here is he will turn the fortunes of Israel back again. Look at that. He says, the Lord has turned away the excellency of Jacob. It reads a little strange. What it means is the Lord has restored the splendor of Jacob, the excellency of Jacob, and the excellency of Israel. So this dual reference, you see, he refers to Jacob. That's the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. Both kingdoms will be destroyed, will be restored, even though the northern kingdom had been destroyed, even though the southern kingdom had been taken captive. In fact, it's very interesting here. When God has turned away, he has turned again to their excellency. I was, I was reading this Hebrew word shuv. It means to turn or return, or in this case, the translation is to restore. And then when we were quoting our memory verse tonight, it crossed my mind. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. That's the word shuv, return to the Lord. Well, here the idea is God will turn again. He will return. He will turn again the fortunes of Israel to be excellent again or to be splendorous again. This is the way it's used in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. God will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you and gather you again from the people where the Lord has scattered you. That's exactly what Nahum is saying. God is going to take all of these people who've been scattered across the face of the earth and bring them back together. And there are two places in the prophets that reinforce this idea that not only will the southern kingdom be restored, but even the northern kingdom will be restored. In one of the really fun stories in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, it's the story of the two sticks. Do you, do you guys know that story? It says there are two sticks. Take the two sticks and the two sticks will become one stick. Well, the two sticks are the two kingdoms of Israel and they'll become one again. Or in Zechariah 10, he says, God will strengthen and save both Judah and Joseph. Both Ephraim, Joseph, the, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. They will be strengthened and they will be saved. This is what God's going to do. He's going to return them to their state of majesty. And I think verse 2 here is the key to understanding all of Nahum's prophecy. The splendor is restored. Uh, it is returned to its former glory. And God promises to restore Israel. In the short term, this means battle against Israel's foes. God's going to do that. And he does. And he brings Israel back with Ezra and Nehemiah and those who came back after the exile. But in the long term, this is the spiritual war against Satan that is one day won through the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, national Israel has not yet been truly restored. That's something that Jesus will do when he comes to reign on the earth. And so here we have this comparison then. What God is going to do to Assyria, 
destruction. What God is going to do to Israel, restoration. And when you think about these things, realize God will destroy those who oppress his people, but he will restore those who've been broken by their sin. And specifically, yes, this applies to national Israel. Specifically, these are the people languishing under Assyrian oppression later under the Babylonians. But principally, if you take the principle that's being taught here and later amplified in the New Testament, he's, the prophet's just saying God rescues his people when they're in affliction. If you're in spiritual affliction, you can cry out to God for rescue. If you are in personal affliction, you can cry out and ask God to help you in your time of trouble. Friends, God often restores wayward children. This is what He does, and He loves doing it. He can restore and heal broken marriages. This is what God does, and He loves doing it. And families that are hurting because of sin, God can bring restoration and healing to those families. Sometimes this is a problem that gets into the church. Churches split. Um, people get angry with one another. People leave the church because of that. And, and sometimes that's because of bad leadership. And even when there's been bad leadership in the past, God can raise up good leadership in the future. God can help churches who struggle if their desire is to do right, even after periods of time where they were doing wrong. This is what God can do. And personally, God can turn your life around if you go back to Him. When you're struggling personally, He can bring back some semblance of what you had before. See, what God can do is something I can't do. All I could do as a child is destroy the, the seat of a car. I have no ability of fixing it. I think there was an advertisement for some sort of tan goo. You remember WTBS, the Atlanta, is that the Atlanta station? That was Ted Turner's station. That's the only way you could watch the Atlanta Braves way back in the day. You know, you got two channels on the cable, and that, or, or three, and that was one of them. And you could get WGN out of Chicago and watch the Cubs. Well, you, they had, they were always selling the weirdest things on that channel, and they sold this stuff that was supposed to restore leather. I think my folks bought that, and it did not work. Okay. Or maybe they didn't do it right, something. It, it ruined it. I can't fix that. But God can. He can fix and restore things that were once broken, and He loves doing it. My friends, two thoughts as we close. Number one, if you're broken right now, you're in a broken relationship. You're, you're, in a, uh, you're broken because of your sin. Something's wrong with you. God can restore you. God can bring you back. Number two, if God loves restoring broken things, shouldn't we love restoring broken things? Why is it that the church is the place where we shoot our wounded, where we hurt those who are already hurting? That's the worst thing we can do. We, we should be here to help each other Follow Christ to the glory of God. That sounds familiar. That's what we should be doing. And, and the reality here is if God loves doing this, we should love doing this. And we should love seeing marriages restored and families restored and churches restored and personal lives put back together again. Knowing that God, the enemy is the enemy, not, not the other believer. 
And my desire for him is that he'd be restored again. Let's have a word of prayer. Father.